This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This guy, uh, you know, from my understanding, has a history, criminal history going back to 1995. And you listed the other charges he's recently been, you know, arrested for, I think, in the last five years. He's previously assaulted officers. He's assaulted healthcare workers, currently on probation for a robbery. Um, and then we see this type of action happen. Sean Sticks Larkin, good to see you, buddy. You too. Want to hear, what do you think of tonight's show? If you got an opinion, let us know. Go to newsnationnow.com, scan the code on your screen, leave a comment. I may try to invite you on the show to discuss, debate with me. Banfield starts now. It is Thursday. This is Banfield. You are loved. Thank you for being here, folks. Friday Eve, we are almost there at the weekend. And I got a packed show for you tonight, starting with details we did not expect to hear about Rachel Morin, the mom of five from Maryland who went on a hiking trail on a Saturday night and her body was found on a Sunday. Uh, Turns out there is a suspect. They think they've got their guy. It's just a matter of where is he and who is he? I know that sounds weird, but you're about to see an interview with the lead detective, lead investigator on this case. Look at that picture. Do you have any idea who that guy might be? Because that guy is leaving a home invasion and assault in L.A. And the DNA from that guy in L.A.? matches the DNA at the scene. Going to find out a whole lot more about this person, the description, the height, the weight, the whole business. Okay, that's coming in just a moment. We're also going to hear from the attorney for Rachel Morin's family because I have so many questions. She's got five kids. How are they doing? How is this news landing? So many questions. Okay, also, there is a story that was so huge in Chicago like 20 years ago. Just bear with me and don't say, well, that's, you know, old news. It's not old news. It's brand new news. Two little sisters disappear out of their own apartment. There they are, three years old, 10 years old. What could have possibly happened to these kids? It was like the biggest search in the history of Chicago. They looked everywhere for these little girls. It was as though they vanished without a trace. And then came the women, one after the other, saying, I'm one of those children. Pick me. More than a dozen. And they all proved not to be these children because these kids would be in their 20s and 30s now. And there's one more in Texas. But this one, this one's different. This one is really, really different. How do I know? Because her family has a lot they're going to tell you tonight on this show about the woman in Texas. So that's coming in just a moment. And then also, um, 
We're used to seeing mugshots all day long, every day. I mean, this is a show about crime and justice, right? Murders and mystery. But it is rare that we see a mugshot like the mugshot I'm about to show you. Um, and the reason I show it to you is because this makes it hard to hide in a crowd when you decide to do that to your face. It also makes it real hard when you're arrested on a really serious charge to dispute any eyewitnesses, right? Because, okay, tall, bald, man, brown eyes, whatever. No, no, this, this makes it really hard. And then those glasses that you think you see on his face, that's tattooed on as well. You'll find out why he's mugshotted, uh, what he is uh, suspected of doing, and um, what's on the back of his head, which is even more bizarre. Okay, so that's all coming up. Let's start with Rachel Morin. It's been 12 days since that horrible murder. We're still waiting on so many details, and I get it. The police can't always tell you everything because they need to keep details that only the killer will know. They've got the investigation. They've got to find the guy who did this. One of the witnesses who says he was there when the body was found said that she was completely naked and she was beaten so badly she was almost unrecognizable. Police said, well, hold on, hold your horses. Maybe that guy wasn't there. So that's a mystery. But what we are finding out tonight is that police did find DNA at the scene of her murder, or at least where her body was found. And police did run that DNA. And police did find a hit clear across the country on the other coast in Los Angeles. It turns out in March, this man burst into a home, a home invasion, assaulting a young girl, leaving his DNA behind and leaving something else behind, leaving some video, some surveillance video of himself leaving the home. The problem is the video is of the man leaving the home. It's not of the man arriving at the home. So we can't see his face, but we can see his back and we can get a pretty good description of the man. But the question is, who is he and where is he? If that happened in March in L.A. and Rachel Moran happened 12 days ago in Maryland, well, he could kind of be anywhere by now, which means if you are watching across the country, the police need your help. Look at this picture. Here he is leaving shirtless, having assaulted a young girl in that home in Los Angeles. Does anything about that picture strike you as interesting, odd? Do you recognize anything? I know it's hard. I know it's hard. But look at it closely. Look at the clothes he's wearing, the sneakers he's wearing, the, the clothing he's carrying, his haircut. Look at the, the curvature of his back, the way he walks. Does any of that look familiar to you? Because if so, the police want to hear from you. I want you to hear Chief Deputy of Hartford County, Colonel William Davis, just hours ago as they released this remarkable news about that man whom they are looking for. Take a look. As you know, since Saturday, August 5th, 12 days ago, the Hartford County Sheriff's Office has been working around the clock to get justice for Rachel Morin and hopefully bring peace to her family. Since that first day, over 300 community tips had flooded our inboxes and emails. Her death has grabbed local, state, national, and international headlines. Everyone with the same goal, find the killer and bring justice to Rachel. DNA evidence is, is part of nearly every modern day investigation, and in Rachel's case, DNA evidence was collected by our forensic services unit. That DNA was analyzed by the Maryland State Police, and it was ran through the National CODIS system. DNA evidence is 
I mean, this DNA evidence has come back as a match tied to a home invasion and, insult, and an assault of a young girl in Los Angeles this past March. Unfortunately, that suspect has not been positively identified, but he did leave behind his DNA. Based on the DNA evidence, we consider the individual in the video we obtained from the Los Angeles Police Department and that we are about to show you on our TV screens to be the person that murdered Rachel Morin on August 5th. So we're now going to show the video. Okay. So they show the video. We're going to continue to show it throughout this uh, this interview. Um, but I also want to tell you about his actual data, right? Here is the description. He is in his low to mid-20s, the police believe, 5 foot 9, 160 pounds of Hispanic descent. So again, I'm going to repeat that. Low to mid-20s, 5'9", 160 pounds, uh, Hispanic descent. Joining me now is Colonel William Davis, the man you just saw in that uh, press conference. He's the Chief Deputy of Hartford County Sheriff's Office. Colonel, we were talking last night and you hinted that you were going to have some information very soon. It turned out it was within a matter of, well, it was within 24 hours. So I'm, I'm really glad to have you back tonight. Thank you for doing this. Is there anything else you can tell us about the man you showed in that video? Well, I mean, I don't know that I could add. You did a pretty good description of everything we're trying to get out there, uh, especially the part where you said you know, we're, we're focusing on a lot of our deployment, trying to make people feel safe on the mom pod trail because that's where this crime occurred. Uh, however, um, he was in, in March. He was in California and in August. He was here. He could be anywhere in the country right now. And he still may be here. So we're trying to get that video out as far out as we possibly can, because we feel confident that if somebody knows him, if they're familiar with him, even though it's just a side and a back view of him, all the things you pointed out, his gait, the way he walks, all those things, if you know him, you're going to be able to identify him. And we're hoping that somebody will give us that information. And, you know, last night yeah, and uh, when I was talking to you, go, go ahead. ahead. Last night when I was talking no, to ahead. you, we had just received that video and we were trying to work our way through it. And we were discussing it and the sheriff was adamant. He said, yeah, let's try to run down our investigation as best as we can. But he was adamant. We need to get that video out as soon as possible. And then tonight was the time we were putting it out. Well, I'm glad that we've got it tonight to show our viewers because uh, we are a national program. So I, I'm not sure if I heard you correctly. We know about Los Angeles, about the assault there. We know about Rachel Morin's assault in Maryland. Do you know of any other locations or any other crimes where CODIS may have hit a DNA profile where he has been? Or do you have any suspicions of where else he's been? No, that is the only uh, locations we know for sure. But, I mean, it, it, it just it's common sense that he, if he did an assault like that in California and then all the way across the country here a few months later, he's doing another assault. I mean, chances are those aren't the only two times he was involved in an assault like that. Can I ask you about the assault in California? Was it a sexual assault in California? Uh, we're going to leave that to the Los Angeles Police Department to talk about their case. I can just say like, kind of what I said in the uh, press conference, that it was a home invasion and that he did assault a young girl in the house there. And what age are we talking about? How old was the young girl in the house? Uh, I don't want to talk about their victims, and I want to let them decide what, what they want to put out about that, honestly, at this point in time. 
The only reason I ask is it might help with someone who might recognize that door, might know of a certain person at that house that fits that age description. I, I just anything that can help jar people's thoughts and memories as to um, who he might be and, and where he's leaving. They might know something about that location. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I think I got to leave that to Los Angeles. Uh, I know they're working on their case out there and uh, I don't want to say anything about their case. It's, it's their case. I respect that. Um, can you tell me about the DNA that you found at Rachel Marin's uh, crime scene? Um, I don't really, because as we talked about uh, the last couple of times I talked to you, um, we don't want to talk about where the evidence was recovered, what it was recovered from, because, again, the suspect knows where we got that DNA. And we want it to just be us and him and knows where that DNA came from until we get him in custody. And I'd be remiss if I don't do my job by asking difficult questions like this next question, and that oh, is, was Rachel sexually assaulted? Yeah, again, uh, I, I appreciate Yeah, You have to ask it. Everybody does. But as we uh, talked about, we don't want to say anything about uh, what happened at that crime scene because, again, the, the suspect knows and we know at this point. And do you think, Colonel, that Rachel knew her killer, or do you think this was truly a random selection uh, through our investigation throughout last night and today when we got that video, uh, we haven't been able to determine that she knew her. We, we, we are going under the belief that it was a uh, unknown. He was unknown to her and she was unknown to him. And it was a, a, a random attack there on the on the trail. So we're going with that. Um, just telling our citizens and our community to use caution when they're out in the community, not just on the trail, as we've talked about many times, you know, uh, make sure you have your cell phone with you, but don't be engrossed in the cell phone. If you're going to wear headphones when you're out exercising, as many people do, don't have them turned up all the way where you can't hear what's around you. And most importantly, if you see something that you think is suspicious or something just doesn't feel right to you, act on those instincts and one, get away. And two, call 911 and let us know. Just one last question, and it's a quick one. Um, the, the new boyfriend, Richard Tobin, that was the new boyfriend of Rachel Morin. A lot of suspicion around him. Understandably, that's usually the way an investigation starts. But is he now um, out of the um, out of the woods on this one? Yeah, I, I mean, right now, yeah, I would say he's out of the woods on this one. Uh, as in any case like this, as we talked about last night, you start close to the victim and you work your way out. So, you know, of course, we had we had interviewed him. We had talked to him. And then when the DNA hit came in, it was pretty clear that he was not the suspect. Colonel, I'm so thankful that you took the time on this extraordinarily busy day to update us. And I hope that when we call you next time, you'll be available again because we want to follow this and get the tip line out and get the phone number out. And here it is real quickly. Uh, you can send tips if you think you know that man in the video that we showed earlier, rmtips at hartfordsheriff.org. There it is on your screen. You can also call 410 430. I'm going to put that up uh, in just a few minutes. So if you missed it this time, don't worry. I'm going to run both of those uh, bits of information in, in just a moment. Hopefully we can help um, Sheriff's Department and, and the investigators to, to solve this one. Uh, thank you so much, Colonel. Appreciate it. Ashley, thank you for helping us get the information out. Well, we'll continue to do it. And I'm going to do that now again with um, Joseph Murtha. He's the attorney for the family of Rachel Moran. He's kind enough to join us live. Um, Mr. Murtha, thank you for being here. Obviously, the first question, the most important question, how is Rachel's family doing and her five children? 
Well, first, I want to thank you for allowing us to speak on behalf of Rachel's family and particularly to a national audience, as you've indicated. They're grieving. Uh, They have had an incredible loss. Rachel was a very dedicated mother, a dedicated daughter, sister, and very involved in everyone's life. And so they're struggling at this point. They just recently had the service for Rachel, and now they're moving on from grieving to wanting to embrace her energy and her spirit by having two public events. One is going to be a Trail of Flowers walk on the Mom Paw Trail, and the other one's going to be a celebration of life for her at a church that she attended. Right, and that's this weekend. Um, we'll make note of that as well a little later in the program. Um, what was their reaction to this news that the DNA strike on Rachel's crime scene matched a crime scene in Los Angeles where a young girl was assaulted in this home invasion we're showing on the screen again? It gives them hope. Uh, the fact that there's evidence, scientific evidence that can be pursued. And particularly the thing that really brings them hope is that with a national audience, just like we have tonight, that there is somebody out there that knows this person. And they're asking that share the information who it is, have some humanity, recognize that this loss has caused incredible pain to lots of people and tell someone who that person is. There's been a lot of discrepancy in reporting on this crime. Um, There was a a witness who said he was part of the search party that found Rachel, and he described the the scene as quite dire, that she was completely naked and that she was uh, beaten to a point where she was almost unrecognizable. And, you know, it's it's hard to, to, to get that clarified. Can I ask you if you know what the facts are and if that comports with the facts of this case? The family has stayed removed from the information that's being disseminated either on social media or even through law enforcement so that they can be supportive of one another and particularly of Rachel's children. So they have avoided the specifics at this time because they're really focused on how are we going to help one another? How are we going to help Rachel's children? Understand. Uh, Did they think that Rachel uh, knew this person or like the colonel, do they think this was a random attack? They believe what the colonel has indicated, that this was a random attack. Rachel, I don't think, had any enemies, and she had lots of friends. And so, sadly, this was a person who randomly picked her out for what a horrific crime it was. Well, And the, the colonel just made news as well by saying that her boyfriend, Richard Tobin, very new boyfriend, um, is out of, the, you know, is out of the, the realm of suspicion at this point. Was there a time the family thought it might be him? Because that's typically how investigations begin with people closest to the victims. The, the thing about this family is that they didn't want to cast aspersions upon anyone. They wanted to be supportive of law enforcement and cooperate, but they weren't going to interject their opinions of who may or may not have done it. They're allowing law enforcement to do their that job, and as a result of it, have stayed away from that. 
I want to show that video one more time. I'm going to ask our control room to run the pictures of the suspect in the California home invasion. There it is again uh, with that description. Let me read the description again. Low to mid-20s in age, 5 foot 9, 160 pounds, Hispanic uh, male. Um, and it is, uh, you got to just look at the way he walks. That's not something I can describe to you. You can just look at it. If you are across this country right now, somewhere between Los Angeles and Maryland, that's a lot of terrain. Uh, take a close look. And if you think you know who this person might be, please call 410-836-7788 or 410-836-5430. Um, or you can uh, send a tip to rmtips at harfordsheriff.org. Joseph Mercer, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, please give our condolences to Rachel's family. This has got to be just a harrowing time for them. And let's just hope and pray that they can find the person who did this. Well, thank you very much. And the family is very appreciative of you allowing this information to go nationally. And their hope is that someone will. Well, we'll continue to. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, th you're, you're more than welcome. We'll continue to follow the story and put that tip line out until they can hopefully track that man down. Um, and we'll follow the story for you as well as soon as we get uh, details. Still to come, I know that you are used to seeing judges the same way that I'm used to seeing judges, and that is high up on the bench because they are exalted, right? They're judges for a reason. They're kind of like better than the rest of us. And so we're used to seeing them up high, looking down on the courtroom. We are not used to seeing them at defense table looking up at a judge. But there is a judge in California who is in a world of trouble after telling anyone who would listen that he shot his wife point blank. Did it matter that he'd been drinking? Did it matter that his son saw the whole thing? Two words, Mark Garagos, he's next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So when you hear all rise, what do you think? You think of a whole courtroom standing up because a judge has walked in and is sitting down. You don't think of a judge standing up. But there is a case in California where when the next time this judge walks into a courtroom, he going to be the one that rises. <laughs> That's him. He's wearing an orange jumpsuit. Not normal for a judge. That is Judge Jeffrey Ferguson. He is facing uh, murder, a felony count of murder. He's facing 40 years to life for shooting dead his wife, allegedly. He's 72 years old, so that's basically, uh, that's a life sentence, no matter what, right? Here is the story of this happy couple. Which, yep, all the friends say they're great, both of them, great people, not violent. Even their adult son says he was never violent with mom. He just has a, you know... He's a little trigger happy with the gun sometimes that going off inside the house. But OK, so uh, Judge Jeffrey Ferguson and his wife, Cheryl, are at a restaurant and they're having a big argument. And he does this like he, he does the finger gun 
thing at the restaurant. And um, the argument continues at the house. This is all according to court documents uh, that the adult son is present. And the wife says the words, well, why don't you just point a real gun at me? according to the son. And the son says dad pulled the gun out of his ankle holster and shot her right there, point blank, um, center of the chest. And then the son called 911, said dad's been drinking and shot my mom. And then the judge called 911 and said, my wife's been shot, we need paramedics. And the 911 operator, smart thinking, always does this, says, did you shoot her? And the judge says, I don't want to talk about that. Uh, minutes later, the judge sends a text message to his court clerk, clerk and his bailiff. And the message reads, I just lost it. I just shot my wife. I won't be in tomorrow. I'll be in custody. I'm sorry. They thought he was kidding. But when the police arrived, he reportedly asked them to, to shoot him. And the police say he also smelled a lot of alcohol. According to the officers, he admitted to shooting his wife. He made these spontaneous statements. I'm sorry, I effed up although he didn't say F. Um, and then he also uh, said, according to police, oh man, I can't believe I did this. Made similar comments later at the police station as well. Single bullet casings found on the couch uh, where the judge was reportedly sitting when this happened. Uh, police found 48 guns in total uh, that he owned. Um, the son said a couple years ago he put a gun to his head and that they had to talk him out of killing himself. Uh, before that, he discharged a gun in the bathroom. So the judge is out. He's, he got bail on murder. It was a million dollars, but he, he got bail. That's a lot of evidence, but is it enough to convict him? I know a guy who knows a lot about this kind of thing. It's Mark Garagos, friend of the show, friend of mine, really smart guy, knows his stuff. He's also uh, not only a trial attorney, he's co-host of Reasonable Doubt, the podcast with Adam Carolla. Garagos, what's your read on this case? Well, he's got two very able lawyers. And I think, and the first thing they said coming out of the box is it was an unintentional shooting. Everything that you just recounted, I think they can place into context that he he pulled, obviously, the gun out, but that it was not an intentional shooting. And either the gun went off or he uh, fired it uh, because he was so inebriated, but he didn't mean to do it. It wasn't intentional. And uh, I'm sure they're going to be arguing for an involuntary manslaughter. So he's got no uh, criminal history and he's got a stellar past, right? He's a judge. He's like the, supposedly the best among us. But he, he did uh, say he all was a these things, right? Prosecutor as well. Yeah, go ahead. Right. So he knows um, what he shouldn't say at a crime scene, having been a prosecutor. And he said he said to the police officers, well, I guess I'm done for a while. And he, of course, said to the, the co-workers, I just lost it. I just shot my wife. I won't be in tomorrow. I'll be in custody. Um, don't you think if it was accidental, a jury would probably feel like he would say something else like, oh, God, I've had a terrible accident. Not I guess I'll be in custody. And it doesn't it seem odd. Well, yeah, no, the whole thing is very odd, obviously, especially when you layer in the fact that uh, a uh, the gun had gone off previously, or that he put the gun to his head previously, that he smells like alcohol. You can make a compelling case that he's going through uh, some kind of uh, alcoholic-induced or, uh, or has got some issues with alcohol. But I think virtually everything you said is still consistent with 
either an accidental discharge or a non-intentional. If you know the the argument is, as you know, Ashley, we've talked about it a million times. If it is with malice, meaning a depraved mind, then it's murder. If it is a killing done without ma- uh, malice, then you're talking about manslaughter. If it's manslaughter, you've got either voluntary. Or involuntary. Voluntary would be generally if it was a heat of passion or something along those lines. It does not sound like that's what the lawyers are going to argue. You know what? It's, yeah. I, uh, that all makes perfect sense and everything you say makes perfect sense, except for the fact that he had to reach down to the ankle holster, unholster a gun, bring it up and shoot. And as you know, this is weird. I always found this weird, but intent can be formed in seconds. It doesn't need to be you lying right. in wait for the you know lover to come home and, and, and pl- uh, elaborate plot. Intent for a first-degree murder can be formed in seconds. Do you think that the prosecutors can make an argument for that, or is that too uphill when you're dealing with a judge? Well, there is there is something that's, I think, a little peculiar. I was taken a little bit aback. The, he's out, as you mentioned, on $1 million bail. I've had cases just this year where... I had people where there was no death and I had to go to the court of appeal back down, do preliminary hearing before I could get a client out where there was no death, where they actually had no bail here. They did not. The prosecutor didn't go in after the police released him and he posted bail, didn't say, hey, uh, the not judge the defendant, but judge who's presiding. Uh, we want you to make this no bail. We're afraid he's going to flee. We're afraid he's, you know, he's done stuff before. He's going to hurt himself. He's never going to be uh, found accountable. They didn't do any of that, which leads me to believe one of two uh, alternatives. Either they're giving him a the benefit of the doubt, or because he's been in the system, they're saying there, but for the grace of God, walk I. I don't know what other explanation oh, there is dear. for yeah, the, the, what are the well, listen, I, I, I can't wait. I was just going to say, I can't wait for the, for the next uh, shoe to drop on this one and for the all rise moment. So will you join me the next time that we have a, a hearing in this case and he makes an appearance? Absolutely. I'd love to do it. Mark Aragos, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Ashley. Okay. Um, if you don't know these two names, you should. Diamond and Tionda Bradley. And if you don't know them, it's okay. I understand it. It was 20 years ago. These two little sweetie pies disappeared out of their apartment in Chicago. And Chicago lost it. This was one of the biggest investigations that town has ever seen. But they didn't find these girls. They never found the girls. Plenty of girls came out of the woodwork, though, saying, I'm her. Either Tionda or Diamond. Uh, But they never were. But one recently has just come forward, and this one looks promising. I'll tell you why and what's happening in just a moment. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. 22 years ago, 
two little girls disappeared from their apartment in Chicago when their mom went to work and left them with each other. Then something strange happened. Mom came home and found a note purportedly written by the older two of the kids. They were three and 10 years old. The 10-year-old was purported to have left a note behind saying that they were going to a store and then to the playground. That's little Diamond Bradley on the left and Tionda Bradley on the right. And mom didn't believe that that note was written by her daughter. She doesn't believe that they went to the store or the playground. She thinks they were taken out of that apartment. And the search was massive. Like Chicago went to the end of the earth trying to find these kids. Couldn't find them. And over the years, 15 different women have come forward to say, I'm Tyander, I'm, I'm Diamond, uh, and they just haven't been. And it has been just heart-wrenching for this, this family. But there is a recent woman in Texas who has come forward, and it is different. It is very different. She actually put out a TikTok in May of this year saying that she's Diamond Bradley, and she shows a scar that is in the exact same place as three-year-old Diamond Bradley's scar. Take a look. For this one... Here with Diamond Bradley. This is Diamond Bradley. Can I see your score? <laughs> she still have that score. Well, that young woman has actually gone to the FBI and given her fingerprints and her DNA. Uh, they're waiting for the results. It's going to be featured in an episode of Investigation Discovery's Missing Person series that airs this Sunday. I want to bring in April Jackson, who is Diamond and Tionda Bradley's aunt, and then also Shalia Bradley-Smith, who is their great aunt. Uh, thank you to both of you for joining me on the program tonight. Shalia, let me just ask you about the, the 15 times prior that women have come out of the woodwork saying that they were either Diamond or Tionda and they just weren't. How did you emotionally process that? Well, actually, it's, you can't emotionally process it. You just have to deal with it. And to uh, clear the record, there's been 16. It was one just last week. Oh, I'm there's been a new one first. since. It just uh, Yes. Unbelievable. Now, this one um, in Texas, this woman seems quite promising. April, other than the scar on the forehead that's in the same place as Diamond Scar, what makes you and the family members feel like this is different? This really could be something. Well, it, it really is different because this young lady actually wants to know who she are, who she is. And not only that, she actually really wanted to go by herself to find out who she was. And she went by herself with, along with another friend to go give that DNA test. So that was different for us versus the FBI making someone else's um, go and get their fingerprint and DNA taken. And Shalia, they, they, there's something else. Like Tracy, the, the girl's mom, went to Texas to try to connect with this woman. Can you tell me what happened um, when she got there and why intuitively it seems as though it's not a good thing, but it might actually be a good thing, the reaction of this young woman to, to Tracy coming to see her? Well, actually, Tracy was uh, taken down and uh, April did accompany her there. Um, at the time, I wasn't aware that April was with her because Tracy does need support, um, you know, from 
a family member when she's, you know, on a quest like that. But that was a quest that I was unaware of. Then I find that uh, they had went down there to attempt to meet with uh, Raylan and her friend. And um, I was contacted by Raylan and her friend, and they felt uncomfortable with meeting with Tracy because they preferred to have just wait, waited until the DNA returned. Uh, but unfortunately, um, I believe that that may have been a part of that production to encourage Tracy to go down there. But um, I disagreed, and I did ask the girls not to meet with them uh, because, you know, when you have, I mean, I don't have missing children. I have missing nieces. And Tracy is my niece. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to protect my family unless I'm sure about every step along the way. And I didn't see any need in meeting this girl as well when the girl had submitted DNA mm. tests, you know. Um, let that come back because that can only put false hope in Tracy uh, trying to meet this girl, believing that it may be her. I mean, she just doesn't need that type of emotional damage. Well, so listen, the, the fact that she's well. given her DNA to the FBI it's uh, it, it's it's very interesting, and I know there's a bit of a wait, and I do know that the, the investigation discovery program this um, Sunday night is going to reveal something large they haven't said so far. I also want to tell our audience as well that that Ray Lynn, the, the girl you're talking about, um, has had a very difficult life. She has talked about being uh, held against her will, given steroids, uh, trafficked in sex. I mean, it's just been a very difficult, difficult life. I'm going to follow this, and we're going to call you just to see if there's any... Um, match that comes up between the woman in Texas and um, and your family member. Thank you both, um, Shalia and uh, and April, for being on tonight. And and I wish you the best of luck in finding at least Simon and maybe Tionda too. And thank you for having us. And if anyone has any information about this, call your local FBI. They can certainly put you in touch with the right people. And there you go. 1-800-THE-LOST is also a great uh, possibility. Um, they've got the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children uh, is incredible in terms of being able to piece together information nationally. So do that. Do that right away. Coming up next, Brian Koberger walks into another courtroom tomorrow. This time, he's got a lot of complaints. He does not like the way the grand jury uh, was convened. He does not like the the way the DNA uh, led to him. Uh, so what's the judge going to say? Well, Kaylee Gonzalez's dad has a preview tomorrow, and he's joining me live next. Nonsense. Nonsense. That is the legal term that is being used right now by the prosecutors in Idaho who are going to be facing off against Brian Koberger in, oh, 46 days. That is when his trial is scheduled to begin. Nonsense, they say, to him and his attorneys who are suggesting that the grand jury process was flawed. They are fighting it. They want the whole indictment thrown out. There's a hearing on it tomorrow. And along with that, there's also uh, another motion in that hearing that we'll be uh, dealing with tomorrow. And that is the DNA chain that led them right to his doorstep. His lawyers say it's flawed. Prosecutors didn't say nonsense, but we can imagine what they will say tomorrow. And we can also imagine what Steve Gonzalez 
is going to be saying under his breath tomorrow because he's Kaylee Gonzalez's dad, one of the four victims of the Idaho murders, and he's here with me live. Steve, thank you for being here. We haven't talked in a while. Um, are you and Christy planning to be at the hearing tomorrow? Yes, we'll be there uh, tomorrow for sure. I suppose when you read the prosecutor's response um, to Brian Koberger's lawyer's assertion that, um, well, that the proceeding that led to the grand jury indictment was unfair. I suppose when you read nonsense, you felt the same way or maybe more. Well, I feel like we definitely understand what unfair feels like as parents. Um, there are six motions that are going to happen tomorrow which makes it a very important uh, hearing to be at. So we'll be there and we will uh, be watching everything, recording everything. Um, I have my legal counsel there and I want to make sure that uh, he understands that he has a whole team of people after him. It's not just uh, the prosecution. It's, it's all the families. We want justice, and uh, we're looking for uh, all this evidence. That's why I want to know about the alibi. We want to know about these different um, motions and give him the opportunity to defend himself. Okay, let's talk about that alibi, because I haven't spoken to you since he actually announced this alibi story that uh, he was out for a long drive between 3 and 4 or 5 in the morning, um, you know, can't prove his whereabouts, but that's the story, and he's sticking to it. What was your reaction when you saw that actually on paper? It helped me understand that we do have the right defendant, and um, there's some computer models that are out there that kind of correlate uh, patterns and speeds and times that people could be going through that neighborhood and how they would match along those surveillance cameras. So I understand the difficulty of being able to come up with an alibi that fits that. But um, the jury will be able to see all this on their own and make that decision. Yeah, coincidences, you know, one coincidence people can accept, two, it gets harder, three or four. Like, I just happened to turn my phone off for that specific time that I was out for my long drive in the darkest, deepest time of the night, um, it starts to get, you know, pretty, pretty tricky. Um, one last quick question. How are you guys doing? Uh, we are, you know, coming up on an anniversary this fall that's going to be very difficult for you and your kids and for the other parents as well. How are you guys managing? You hope that it gets better, but truth is losing somebody as important as Kaylee and Maddie and Ethan and Zanna, it, it never gets okay. It never feels good. It never, you don't heal from that. So I just, I have a job to do as a parent and um, I hope everybody understands what we're doing and what we're going through. I think most people will absolutely understand that. But, you know, having never walked in your shoes, they'll never truly get it. Um, 46 days. I don't know if they'll get, you know, grant him a stay, whether there'll be a delay in that. But 46 days, that's that's coming soon. The start of this um, trial, at least the scheduled start. Steve, thank you. Please give my love to Christy and the rest of your kids and um, be well, my friend. Thank you. 
Steve Gonzalez joining us live. We're going to continue to follow that. We're going to do live coverage as well um, on that hearing. And then, of course, tomorrow night, the full wrap up on what happens in that hearing. Six motions, whether they'll be ruling on them tomorrow. That's another question altogether. But there will be rulings. You'll hear them, too. All right. Coming up next, identifying a suspect is always a tricky business. Um, even criminals who have mugshots can change their appearances later and be hard to track down. But there is one mugshot that, um, well, it kind of defies all that. It's just really, really hard to hide in the crowd. And it's just really, really hard to dispute, dispute any eyewitnesses who may have seen you committing a crime. After the break, you'll find out what this guy was arrested for. and. Um, what the deal is with this anyway? Next. I used to wear glasses, big horn room glasses for like two decades. And then I just got rid of them in 2015 and had a big old surgery, like Jamie Summers kind of surgery, bionic woman. Um, so I'm very sensitive to people who want glasses, especially a guy like uh, James Gina III, who decided to tattoo glasses on his face, among other things, on his face. And the reason I show you this is because this, shall I say, moron, uh, he was arrested in Las Vegas on suspicion that he killed his girlfriend. So if there's any witnesses in this case, it's going to be real hard to, you know, throw water on the eyewitness um, accounts if he gets charged in it. Again, it's just suspicion for now. Um, he appeared in a Las Vegas courtroom this morning, and we got to see him from all angles. And I want you to see the side view. He has glasses on the back of his head. This is him making his court appearance with glasses on the back of his head and tattooed glasses. And then, I don't know, a bandana. I think he tried to tattoo a bandana, but it just looks like mud. Yeah, it looks like he was out on a long gator ride, but he is in for a serious ride. All right. Hey, everyone. Thank you for being here. Have a great weekend because Brian's in for me tomorrow night. Cuomo starts now. <laughs>